Take out your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4, picking back up in verse 8 and continuing on in verse 9, page 982 in the Pew Bible. Theoretically, we only have two more weeks left in the book after today. That can change, so don't get your hopes up. But either way, we're almost done. I knew a fair amount about the book going into it. I knew that it was a joy-heavy book. I knew that it was a joy-heavy book because it is a Jesus-heavy book. But one of the things that I didn't know was how central, as we saw last week, thinking was to Paul's argument, using that word think 12 times in this short book. And then related to that, I just didn't know and have repeatedly been struck by just how repetitive Paul is in this book. I'd never really noticed it because I hadn't yet studied it in the detail I have now. And he does it again in what is basically his last line, his, his summary statement before he gets to a couple of closing comments beginning in verse 10. And this is closely connected to what we looked at in verse 8 last week. These two verses, 8 and 9, cannot be separated. A good preacher would have been able to do them together. Uh, so we're going to try to do that today. Uh, but this is Paul's conclusive, finally. Think about these things, verse 8. Practice these things, verse 9. Or for alliterative stake, ponder and practice. That's what he wants to leave us with. And this is one of the main thrusts of the letter, his final application. And the question then is, is why? Why does he want us to leave us with this? Why does he want us pondering and practicing? Well, let's look back and see a little bit and see where this has been kind of woven through the rest of the letter. Look back starting at chapter 1, verse 9. He starts off with a prayer, remember? And, and what is Paul's prayer for them? You generally pray about what you're most concerned about. You can examine your heart and see what you most care about by examining your prayers. Right? What is it that you're generally praying for? Well, look at what Paul prays for. He prays that their love would abound with knowledge and discernment, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what does Paul want for them? He wants godliness. He wants holiness, pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Look at 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Look at 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Look down at 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. 3.10. On and on. I know that I may know him. May share in his sufferings becoming like him. 3.17. We saw imitate me. 4.9. Brothers join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Sorry, that's 317, which is the same as 4.9. So just like last week with all the repetition of joy and repetition of think, making it clear what Paul is talking about, Paul's also making it clear that he is very concerned with our practice or with our living, our doing, our walking, or most simply our, our Christ-likeness. That's what he wants. For us. Remember, we've been talking a lot about 3 verse 10. Two things he says there, uh, that I may know him and that I may become like him. And you can make the case that that's the sum and substance of the Christian life. Knowing him, becoming like him. That's, that's the Christian life. And those two are intimately wed together. You cannot have one without the other. If you truly know Christ, it will lead to becoming like Christ. So knowing Christ, becoming like him. Chapter 4, verse 8, think about these things. Think about Christ. 4, 9, practice these things. Be like Christ. That's what Paul wants for the Philippians and for all of us. That's what I want for myself and for my family and for all of us. He wants us, Colossians 1, 28, mature in Christ. That's Paul's goal. And that's his role, to facilitate that growth, to preach Christ so that Christians may know Christ and become like Christ. Christ, to be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness, so that you may live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. That's your calling. And this is just basic Christian discipleship. All right, Jesus says in Luke 640, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Discipleship is likeness. 
And so as those of us who claim the name of Christ, we are likewise called to be increasingly becoming like Christ. Those whom God saves, he changes. Those whom he justifies, he sanctifies. How does that happen? And we know it's by grace through faith. We know it's all his uh, work. But we also know that we're not called to be passive in the process. We're to live out our salvation. How? What's these two verses? It's verse 8 and verse 9. It's by pondering and practicing. Last week we looked at holy thought. We're going to pick back up on that. And then this week we'll focus by looking at holy practice. Thinking about Christ will lead to living like Christ. That's basically the, the argument of Paul's text. And this is what we are all called to do, commanded to do as Christians. This is how we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's three basic points. It's, it's simple. He gives us two commands. He says, ponder these things. We're going to pick back up on that. Then he says, practice these things. But then he gives us a promise. He gives us, here's the motivation for the first two. The pom- promise is ponder and practice these things for the presence and the peace of God. Right? And the God of peace will be with you. That's our motivation for doing everything that we're called to do in the first two parts. So ponder and practice in the presence and peace of God. That's all we're looking at this morning. Let me read it for you before we begin. Here's the most important part. Here is God's word. Here's what my words are supposed to be exposing, coming from. So let's read Paul first, and then we'll begin to walk through the passage. Two verses, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. This is what God wants to say to you today. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we ask now that you would be with us. We ask that you would help the preaching of your word, help the hearing of your word. And as we read specifically this morning about practice, we ask that you would help us be not hearers only, Lord. Help us to be doers of your word. Father, take this word that is living and active. And Father, wake us up to the beauty of it. Wake us up to what it is that we are called to do. Stir in us uh, through the preaching of your word, uh, love for Jesus Christ. Uh, Stir in us a will and a desire to obey him and to follow him and to be more like him. Father, do for us and in us what we cannot do for ourselves at this time. Father, help us, we pray, uh, by your spirit, through your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so last week we looked basically at one word. We kind of just looked at the word think or ponder is what we're calling it. Some translations say dwell on these things or meditate On these things. So we looked at the biblical practice of biblical uh, meditation. Psalm 1 The blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditation is what it means to think on these things. It's the biblical practice, not of emptying our minds, but of filling our minds with the things of God. It's the bridge between hearing from God as he speaks to us through his word and then speaking back to God through. So again, I won't repeat all that, uh, but I hope that we're at least getting uh, that in a Christian world that increasingly minimizes the mind, that Paul does not do that. He's concerned with our thinking. He wants us to mind our minds. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Ephesians 4, 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. 1 Peter 1, 13 says, prepare your minds for action, Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. I mean, you get the point. Your mind matters and your thinking matters more than you think. And so Paul makes that undeniably clear in the book of Philippians, repeatedly connecting our rejoicing with our thinking. So the basic idea is simple. It's, it's Christian. It's think. I've mentioned recently that we're going, we'll be here next Sunday, and then we're heading to Scotland the Sunday after that to, to speak at a church retreat there. So I'm reading lots of Scottish things because I love preparing myself and kind of getting in the mood. Another Scotsman, uh, Robert Murray McShane, he's not too far from where we will be. Well, I mean, a long time ago. He's dead. But he lived not far from where we will be. Here's what he said. 
He wrote, and he said this in one of his sermons. He says, most people never stop to think. More souls are lost through lack of consideration than in any other way. The reason why men are not awakened and made anxious for their souls is that the devil never gives them time to consider. Therefore, God cries, stop, poor sinner, stop and think, consider your ways. That's what Paul's saying here. Christian, consider your ways. Think about these things. But then the question is, what things? And obviously it's the Word, the Word inscripturated and the Word incarnated, the Scriptures and the Christ of Scriptures. But we were so tight on time last night, last week, that we just jumped straight to that without getting there from the text. So before we can move to consider the practice of these things, let's actually walk through the rest of verse 8 to see what these things are. So look at verse 8 and let's, let's walk through it kind of quickly. You'll see there's a pattern. This is a unique verse. There's no other verse like this in Paul's writing. We have six whatevers followed by six adjectives. And then we have two summary innies followed by two nouns. So there are eight things, uh, six descriptions, and then I think two summaries. Well, we can't spend too much time on each, but let's, eat, let's at least define them uh, as we walk through verse 8. Look at the first one. He says the first is whatever is true. And it's important that that's the first thing. We'll look at this when we get to verse 9, but there's some debate on what this list tells us to think about. But Paul's explanation of these things in verse 9, and then starting off by saying whatever is true, I think there's actually really no debate. What is true? What does that mean? Well, most generally, a truth is that which corresponds to reality. That's the easiest way to define truth. It's hard to define truth. That which corresponds with reality. But what is reality? Well, ultimately, it's, it's God's reality. It's whatever he says is true. John 3.33 says that God is true. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 18.37, before Pilate, minutes before his crucifixion, Jesus says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. I love that verse. What is it? What's the purpose? We expect him to say something like to save sinners or for the forgiveness of sins. But he doesn't say that. He says that he came to bear witness to the truth. If you're interested in truth, go read the Gospel of John. Because John is very concerned with truth and it's all worked throughout the book. So Jesus says that he came ultimately to bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to God himself as the word of God. Remember he's introduced at the very beginning of the book as The word, that which speaks, that which reveals. So he's the perfect revelation of God, the God who is true as the word who is truth. So whatever is true, whatever Paul means by whatever is true, has to correspond with God. And that then has to constrain everything else that is to follow. So he says, first, think only about true things. Second, he says, think whatever is honorable. The word means that which is noble, dignified, uh, lofty. It comes from the verb that means to revere or to be in awe. So it's something that is worthy of respect. These would be things of weight, things of significance, beautiful things, not base things, high things, not low things. Makes me think of Colossians 3, 2 again. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on earth. So high, not low. And that, that, one's, that one's an important one for today because how much of our time do we waste on low and worthless things? Over a billion hours of YouTube are watched every single day. That's a lot of hours uh, of YouTube and most of it's garbage, right? It's foolish, pointless things. I'm going to great lengths to protect my children from YouTube. Parents, don't just give your child a tablet and access to YouTube. That's a bad idea. Uh, don't, don't do that. And it's not just the stuff that's explicitly sinful and evil, but the stuff that is mindless and useless. If the mind matters, if what you fill your mind with determines the course of your life, well then stop filling it with junk. Think about honorable things, weighty things of significance. Third is whatever is just, or as the New American Standard puts it, whatever is right. And this is an important example of thinking carefully of making sure we don't read into Scripture something that is not there. Because our culture is very much interested in justice these days. We'll probably talk about this sometime. This is not the time. But often, not always, but often what many people mean by justice is not necessarily what the Bible means by justice. 
Justice is good. God is a God of justice. We just need to make sure and understand what that means and not just read into it what we want it to mean, like here. Because it says whatever is just. What does that mean? Well, it's the adjective of the same noun that Paul has just repeated three times in chapter 3, verse 9. Being found in Christ. Well, how can we be found in Christ? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's the same word, noun and adjective. So whatever is just is whatever is righteous. God is righteous, so to be right with him, to be in relationship with him, we have to be righteous, we have to be right. Because God has declared us righteous in Christ and is progressively making us righteous, well, we should think about righteous things, which means that which is upright and that which is holy, that which conforms to God's law. So he defines justice, not not the world. Do you understand justice as that which conforms to God and his law? That's That's what Paul's saying. Think about just things. Next, he says, whatever is pure. If just is really righteous, then pure, hagnos, is really holy. Comes from the same word, the same root word for holy, holiness, and sanctification. It's that which is clean, unmixed, unadulterated. If we must be holy as God is holy, then we must fill our minds with that which is holy and pure, which then means guarding our minds from anything that is, that is not. Right? You should always be, this is a very convicting verse to me a, a long time ago, based upon thinking about my media intake and these things. Right? You should run what you watch and think and joke about through the lens, through the filter of Ephesians 5. Right? Go meditate on Ephesians 5, verses 2 and 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place. Verse 9 says, walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So he says, think about pure things, holy things, unadulterated, unmixed with sin. Set your mind on those things. Then it's whatever is lovely. This is a tough one because this is the only time in the Bible that this word is used. It comes from the word phileo, which just means to to love and refers to whatever is pleasing, agreeable, and and beautiful. Often, generally, in Greek writing, used to refer to moral or ethical beauty. He's not talking about, like, think about good-looking women. That's not what he's saying. Lovely things, uh, morally and ethically Lovely. Yes, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and God is the beholder. So whatever is lovely is that which is beautiful in his eyes. He defines what is to be attractive to us, not the world. The world exists. Advertising exists to convince you of what is lovely and what you should desire and be attracted to. No, no, we're saying God's word is what uh, is supposed to uh, shape and inform and tell us what is supposed to be desirable and attractive to us. This ethical, pure, holy, righteous loveliness. There's much in our world that it calls lovely that is quite unlovely. And scripture is telling us to think about lovely things. Last one is then whatever is commendable or whatever is of good report or good repute. It's that which is well spoken of or highly regarded. Again, only time in the Bible this word is used. But as we just read in Ephesians 5, there are some things that are just not proper, not fitting, uh, not even enough to be named. It's so out of place for God's people. Right? This is that which is proper and fitting, again, in God's eyes. Think about things that, that he would find commendable. And then finally, the two summary statements, any excellence, anything worthy of praise. Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, loves the word excellence. And it's actually the word for, for virtue. It's, it's not just general, be great at your job kind of thing. Do be great at your job. But it's talking specifically about moral excellence. It's the word for virtue. First Peter 2.9 says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? For what purpose? That we may proclaim his excellencies. Same word. 
Second uh, Peter 1.3, same thing. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His glory, his virtue, his excellence. God is excellent. He's morally wonderful. Anything that corresponds to his excellence, think about that. Anything worthy of praise, worthy of his praise, praiseworthy by the perfectly excellent God himself. Paul says, think about those things. And that's it. And if you think about it, that's pretty comprehensive. That covers everything. Nothing that is worthwhile for you to think about is left out. Anything at all that is a matter of moral and spiritual excellence and is worthy of praise is, is where your mind should be. These are the things that you should think about. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. Ponder those things. You know, it just means slow down. One of the main things I want you to do is just slow down. I'd read the Bible and slow down. Think about it. Intentionally and deliberately fix your mind on those things. Chew on them, stew in them, fill yourself with them, meditate on these things because your mind matters. Your mind moves your affections and your will so that what you fill that mind with will affect uh, those affections and then will move uh, that mind. It matters what's in your head. So think, but don't just think because that's not really thinking. That's not what Paul means here. It is a thinking that is supposed to result in doing. Richard Sibbs, in his wonderful little book, The Bruised Reed, writes this. He says, all scandalous actions are only thoughts at first. Ill thoughts are as little thieves, which creeping in at the window open the door to greater. Thoughts are the seeds of actions. So he's talking about bad thoughts, but that applies to good thoughts as well. Thoughts are the seeds of of action. And so verse 8, thoughts, continues on into verse 9, actions, and they are closely connected. The Christian life does not consist entirely in point number one. Point number one is very important. Ponder these things, but that pondering is then supposed to result in something. Ponder produces practice. Point number two, practice these things. Let me read verse 9 again. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Stop there for now. Before we get to the main idea, the verb, practice, I want you to notice something important. If you're looking at the King James or the NASB, you'll see that the order in verse 9 is a little bit different. Those verse 9s begin with the things. Instead of, like the ESV, learn, received, heard, seen, practice these things at the end, it's these things you have learned, received, heard, saw, practiced them. Right? The things is first. And by moving it to the front of the verse, you have verse 8 end with these things, and then verse 9 begin immediately with these things, which makes it more clear that the things in verse 8 are the same things in verse 9. And so Paul's explanation of these things in verse 9 further helps us understand what he is and is not saying in verse 8. So this cannot be, as some have tried to make it, a call to affirming and engaging that which is good in the culture. Look, there are honorable, just, lovely things in the world. Meditate on those things. Well, again, no, that can't be what Paul is saying. Are there good things produced by non-Christians that we should affirm and appreciate? Of course. Of course there are. I grew up on Paul Simon and James Taylor. Uh, I only was allowed to listen to old music. Uh, wonderful songwriters and great storytellers. I still sing the 59th Street Bridge song every time I drive over the Queensboro Bridge. Right? If you don't know that song, feeling groovy, you should look it up. So these guys are not Christians, but they make beautiful music, and they sometimes say true things. Sometimes they don't. They need to be listened to with wisdom and discernment. Uh, but I, I'm saying I don't think it's necessarily wrong to find and enjoy beauty in the world. Beautiful classical music created by a non-believer can be a beautiful thing that you enjoy. It's getting harder and harder as our culture becomes even more and more explicitly opposed to God. But the general principle stands. But again, I bring that up because just to say that's not at all what Paul is referencing in these verses. These verses just aren't about that. The things in verse 8 that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, are the things that he taught them in verse 9. These things you learned and received and heard and saw in me. Right? So they're the same things. And, and what was that? 
But we know ultimately, because it's Paul, what we know is the gospel. Because that was all Paul talked about. Everything he taught was rooted in and revolved around that gospel. Even we saw this letter. Remember 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? Nothing but Christ and his death. That's the gospel. And so we just play it, Peter. Oh, we need a mission statement. Oh, so okay. We just plagiarized Paul to get our mission statement. 1 Corinthians 1.23, We preach Christ crucified. That's the message. That's the core message that they would have learned from Paul. And listen, if you're visiting us here this morning and you do not know Jesus, that's the one thing, like Paul, that we would want you to learn. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? This gospel, which is of first importance, he said, is that God is righteous and good and he created us to be righteous and good. Right? All that list of things in verse 8, he created us uh, to be those things with him, to know and to love him. But we have all of us rejected and rebelled against this good God. We, we set ourselves at odds with him. We sinned against him. And since he is just in all that he does, he must punish Sin, And since sin is a rejection of him, and since he is himself life, well, then the wages of sin is death. Right? We deserve and get death for our sinful rejection of the God of life. That's the bad news. When the bad news only gets worse because there's nothing you can do about it. Right? You have to be righteous. You have to be perfectly good. And you're not. And you can't be. Which is why you need Jesus. The good news, which is why Paul is so adamant that this is the thing that he was all about. That Christ came precisely because there was nothing we could do, nothing we could deserve. Christ came because of sin to take that sin and to die for that sin. The gospel is that God himself solves our sin problem for us in sending Jesus to take our place. He dies for us, bearing the penalty that we deserved for our sins so that we can be forgiven and restored to God and live. That's the gospel that you need to learn and receive, and you receive it by repenting and believing, by turning away from that sin and turning to Jesus. If you have questions about that, if none of that made any sense, then we'd love to talk to you about it. Right? Talk to somebody around you. Uh, come find me or Pastor Mike after the service, and we'd love to explain to you uh, in more detail what this means. But the point is that what they would have learned from Paul, first and foremost, would have been the gospel. That's what he preaches. This whole letter, as we've seen, is about Jesus and the gospel. 1-1, he writes to those who are saints in Christ Jesus. 1-2, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's basically shorthand for the gospel, right? Because grace and peace comes through the person and work of Jesus. 1-5, he thanks God for their partnership in the gospel. Uh, 1, 15 through 18, he talks about Christ being proclaimed and Paul's willingness to be in prison if it helps Christ be proclaimed more. 2, 6 through 11, we know is the heart of the letter. It's the beautiful summary of the person and work of Christ. It's the gospel. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. And that's ultimately what they would have learned from Paul. And over and over again, he comes back to that same core, life giving, life changing message. And he says, Listen, this has to be the center. This has to be everything because Jesus is everything. And so he gives them Jesus, and he gives them more Jesus, and then he explains more of Jesus. He gives them doctrine and theology because those are about Jesus. All he wants is for people to know Jesus, and so he teaches them. The gospel. There must be teaching. There must be learning that which you have learned from me, he says. So, so are we learning the, the things of God? Look down at verse 11. Paul uses the same word, learned, there. We're looking at contentment next week. Uh, one of the most popular but least understood verses in the Bible. And in verse 11, we see that Paul has learned in whatever situation that he is to be content. So, first off, good news, uh, contentment is something that can be learned. Paul had to learn it. 
That's next week. The point right now is that Paul's use of the word learn in the context of 11 sheds light on what he means by learned in verse 9. Someone didn't just say to Paul, hey, Paul, be content in whatever situation. He's like, oh, okay, I got it. Uh, no, it means that he learned it by experience. It says he has abounded. He has been brought low through the various circumstances that God has brought into Paul's life, both good and bad. Paul, through those experiences, has learned contentment. Jesus uses the same word learned in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. And you know these verses. Uh, don't let your familiarity with them keep you from the beauty of these verses. These are just ones that you should memorize and meditate on. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor, or can mean all who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's wonderful. Jesus himself invites us into his rest. He says, rest for your souls. And that's what all of us long for. Find it in him, because he is God, and he's gentle and lowly in heart. He is God, and he is kind, and he cares for his children. And so when he says, learn from me, he doesn't mean just sit in the classroom and learn some intellectual truths about him. He means learn by, by observation and by practice, by fellowship and by communion. He means follow and imitate, watch and learn. He means be with me. The word learn is actually related to the same word for disciple. You, know, you can see they look the same if you look at the Greek. And so when Jesus tells us to learn from him, he's calling us to discipleship. When Paul talks about what you have learned, he's ultimately talking about discipleship. The very last thing that Jesus calls and commands us of in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. How? What does that consist of? Baptizing and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So discipleship is learning, but it's learning to observe and to obey and to do and to practice. So he starts off with what you have learned and received. It starts with teaching the gospel. But this gospel is not a a static uh, do-nothing gospel. It's not an effect-change-nothing gospel. If that's your gospel, then it's not the gospel. Well, what other things would they have learned from Paul? It's all the gospel. It's all Christ. But he also applies it, and he fleshes it out to our day-to-day lives. What would they have learned? Let's, Let's be clear. You don't do the gospel. You don't live the gospel. That's what Jesus does. But you do live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. The gospel is what God does for us through Christ, but there are fruits of the gospel. It has a discernible, uh, discernible effect on our lives. Like what? What are some of these other things they would have learned from Paul? Well, just from chapter 4. Look at chapter 4. Look at verse 1. They would have learned about standing steadfast. What about things like living in harmony with one another? In verse 2. What about like helping one another? In verse 3. What about like rejoicing always in verse four or showing big heartedness to everyone in verse five about not being anxious about anything in verse six. They would have learned about praying about everything with thanksgiving in verse six. They would have learned about meditating on the things of God in verse eight. Paul's saying all of these things, practice them, do it. And so the thinking of verse 8 is no mere intellectual exercise. It is pondering with a purpose, and that purpose is practice. Thinking for the purpose of doing, meditating that results in acting. There's a, you know I'm particular about my preaching. There's a lot of bad preaching out there. Preaching is so important, so please be careful about what you listen to online and, and the other preachers. Make sure you're listening to good preaching. Uh, Alistair Begg is good preaching. He's a guy that I like. B-E-G-G. Another Scottish guy. Uh, go listen to him. But his point, this point got me thinking about his ministry. If you've ever listened to Begg, if you want to look him up or find him on iTunes or download his app, it's called Truth for Life. It's Truth for Life. And then they end every little message with their little tagline. It's where the learning is for living. Um, well, that's, that's exactly what Paul is saying. That which you learned now live. That which you received and saw and heard, now practice. And we're talking about the Christian life. That obviously involves living and doing. Paul has told us from the beginning of the letter to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. 
So yes, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, amen and amen. It's all his doing, but it is precisely his doing that then leads to our doing. It is a faith that works. And if your faith does not work, well, then it's, it's not faith. Or according to James 2, it's, it's false faith or, or dead faith. He says, think on these things and then do these things. There's so many places in Scripture we could go to confirm this. We're working through the Sermon on the Mount right now in Sunday school. Just lots of teaching, teaching, teaching. Here's who I am. Uh, Do this thing. Here's how uh, to live. Uh, How does he conclude all of this teaching? Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He says, hear my words and then do them. That's, that's wisdom. Right? That's the pattern of the Christian life. John 13, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. James 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And we just read Joshua 1, Moses has died. God comes to speak to Joshua uh, to prepare him to lead the people into the promised land. And he says this in verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Philippians 4, 8, so that you may be careful to do, Philippians 4, 9, according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So uh, four passages, each one, do, 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 practice these things. As we've seen, this is is an imperative. This is a command. He's executed, uh, perform it. It's not optional, and it's in the present tense. We're saying, so do this continually. Keep practicing these things. Paul has taught the message. He's modeled the message. And so he says again, basically in this verse, as he did in 317, well, now imitate me. Do what I do. Live as I live. So that's the pattern of the Christian life. It starts with proclamation. Someone teaches. Then believers hear. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Uh, We sin in verse 8. The believers then meditate on that word, that voice, until they understand. Think on those things. And then believers act. They practice. They do. Verse 9. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will do these things. Ponder and practice. And so are you practicing these things? Right? Are you obeying God's clear word? Uh, does your faith demonstrate itself in your works? Brothers and sisters, we have to understand that the Christian life is no passive thing. Yes, God's grace is entirely a gift. Regeneration is entirely, uh, here's the big word, monergistic, one work. That's all it means. Is God's the one who does it? Regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit. We are dead. God makes us alive. We are not mostly dead, just waiting for a lifeline to grab. No, we're dead. God makes us alive. Our hearts are dead. God gives us new hearts. He does it. We have nothing to do with that. We do nothing. We're entirely passive in the work of regeneration. But once God does that in us and for us, those new hearts, they beat. They come to life when Jesus calls Lazarus and in calling gives him life. Then Lazarus walks out and he responds. He obeys. We are passive in regeneration, but then very, very much active and alive. And that first shows itself by repenting and believing. Listen, that's something that we must do. God does not repent and believe for us. Now, again, his work comes First, that regeneration proceeds and causes the faith. And it's not we have faith, then we are born again. You can't because you're dead. It's we are born again by the grace of God. And then we respond in faith. And yes, even that faith itself is a gift of a gracious, sovereign God. But we must exercise it. Right? We must do it. And so Paul can say in, in chapter 2, verse 12, a verse that I think makes some people uncomfortable these days, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And he's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying live it out. He's talking about our sanctification. He's saying practice these things. Seek and pursue holiness. Fight and resist sin. Kill sin. Do good. Obey God. Practice these things all along 
while knowing, verse 13, that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians 1, 29 again. Paul wants to present everyone mature in Christ, or 28. So verse 29, he's so concerned about it. He's passionate, so he toils and he struggles, but with all his energy, with all God's energy that he powerfully works within Paul. So Christians, we're commanded to practice these things, to do what we have now by the grace of God been enabled to do by giving us new hearts and by giving us the spirit to obey, to ponder, and then to practice. So if you're pondering the sinfulness of some sin, well then resist and kill that sin. Repent of it, confess it, and then do something about it. If you're pondering the command to pray, well then pray. If you heard the command uh, a few weeks ago in chapter 4, verse 2, that Christians cannot continue in conflict, but then you did nothing about it, well then repent and practice these things and go and be reconciled. I don't know what it may specifically be for you, but whatever it is, if the Spirit is putting his finger on it, do it. Practice it. James 4, 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. But if you know what to do, do it. Practice these things. That's why God has given us his word. It shows us. It guides us. It's so kind and good that our God reveals us to us how the world works and what pleases and honors him and how things will go well for us in his life, in this life. He's making us holy. That's, that's what he's doing. And we've got to get it in our brains that holiness is bad. I know holy is happy. Keep in mind that all of this is in the context of, of joy and the wonderful command to rejoice always. Guys, listen, sin kills joy. So, so kill sin. Find joy in the pondering of the things of God and in the practicing of the things of God. Be doers of the word. Practice these things so that... We may be holy, as we read in the beginning, filled with the fruit of righteousness, pure and blameless. Notice he says, for the day of Christ, for the coming of Christ. So Paul wants us mature. He wants us holy. And he's telling us how that works. He says, here are the things. Here's the gospel. Here's the scriptures. Here's Christ. uh, True and beautiful and lovely, commendable things. Ponder them and practice them. And what will result? Let's close with the promise Uh, Last thing, uh, we close with the presence and the peace of God. Look at the end of verse 9. Here's the only way any of this is possible. Ponder and practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You What a wonderful promise that is. And it's a promise of God's presence. Remember verse 7, peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. So two weeks ago, we saw that prayer was the solution to your anxiety, but not prayer in and of itself. Prayer is that which connects us to a person, to to God himself, who is peace. Prayer does not solve our anxiety. God does. And prayer is how we access him. So the solution to your anxiety is a person, capital P person. It's, It's God, the God who is with his people. And this is what sets God apart. And it's the fact that he is not apart. That he is here and that he is near. We're starting back in Genesis 12 in a couple of weeks when we finish Philippians. And we're going to have to look again at the covenant in great detail. But we get so confused and technical about covenants and what are they and what, what are all these things. But again, remember the core, the heart, the core promise of the covenant. Right? The Emmanuel principle of the covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what covenants are about. It's about God making a way for his sinful people to be with him and for him to be with them. This is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, because he is literally God with us. And so when he gets ready to return, he tells his disciples in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In 14.3, he says again that he will come and he will take them to himself and that where, that where he is, uh, there we, may we also be. And then he actually says in 16.7, this is still hard for us to wrap our minds around. Right? Remember, he, says, he said, hey, it's, by the way, it's to your advantage. It's good for you that I 
that I go away. Why? Because he says, if, if I don't, then the helper will not come. But if I do go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit, who is with us, who is in us, who is always present with his people. And it is his presence, the very presence of God, that brings us peace, calm, contentment, completeness. And it's God's presence that is peace. And we know that in Christ, God is always with us. He does not and he cannot fluctuate and change. Remember, our union with God in Christ does not and cannot fluctuate and change. Well, why then does Paul tell us to ponder and practice these things and then the God of peace will be with us? Because as we've said before, though our union with God cannot fluctuate or change, I don't know how to do a hand motion for that, our communion with God can. Our experience of our union with God can. And so Paul is telling us to put away sin, anything that separates us from God, and by that I mean anything that hinders our communion with him. He says, put all that away and pursue holiness and do it by pondering and practicing these things. And as you pursue the things of God, God himself, who is the God of peace, will be with you. You do. If you are in Christ, you have objective peace with God and Christ. Praise God. Rest in that. Cling to that truth. And then ponder and practice these things to increasingly experience the subjective peace of God by his spirit. Your awareness of that peace, the, the calmness, the contentment, the joy, the conviction, as we're about to sing, that all is well. Regardless of your circumstances, in Christ all is well. So he's saying ponder and practice and God will be with you. Let me close with John 20. If you want to look at this, this will be the last thing. Uh, John 20, page 906. I'm going to close with this. Uh, John 20, verse 20. I was, this was part of my reading this week and it just struck me and I had to use it. We're after the resurrection. Jesus appears for the first time to the disciples. And I love it. And it says... It says, they were glad. And I love that. It's the same word that Paul uses over and over again in our study of Philippians. It's, it's the same word for joy. Kero, uh, 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 the verb form of care, ra. They were glad. They rejoiced. Or as we've been saying, glad because of grace. That's what joy is. And so notice the connection. Look at verse 20. They were glad. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. That's what it means to rejoice. This joy that we've been told over and over again by Paul that is only found in the Lord. They are glad because they saw and were now with Jesus. You will be glad only when you see and are with Jesus. Joy is there again directly connected to Jesus. If you're not finding joy, it's because you're looking for it somewhere other than Jesus. It's nowhere else. Only find it in him. And so they rejoice when they say, see Jesus. But go on to verse 21. Don't miss the first thing that the risen Christ speaks to his disciples. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And the again there is because Jesus just said, them to this, just said this to them in verse 19. Right? He shows up miraculously behind a locked door. And the first thing he says is peace be with you. He shows himself, his resurrected body. They're glad. And he says again, peace be with you. So again, the first word he says to his troubled, disturbed uh, apostles after all that's gone on, he says, peace. He's present with them and there is peace. Remember Matthew 11, rest for your souls. Come to me and find rest for your souls. That's that's peace. And so in him, with him, again, there's no more anxiety. There's no more uncertainty. There's no more striving and laboring to prove ourselves or identify ourselves or justify ourselves. There's just, there's just Jesus. And there's completeness to be found in him. There's perfect peace offered in his presence. He is with them. They are glad. And he speaks peace. Remember Joshua 1.8, meditate on the law, do the law, but don't forget verse 9. For the Lord your God is with you 
wherever you go. Right? That's how they were able to do what it is that they did. And in Christ, that is true for every single one of us. The Lord, our God, our Father, my Father, is with you wherever you go. I read a book, I was reading a book on Friday that was all about how much father hunger drives everything that all of us do, even if we're not aware of it. Um, it makes me really nervous about being a good father. Some of us have had good fathers, praise God. Some of us have had terrible fathers. Here's the perfect heavenly father. Never lets us down. Never leaves nor forsakes. He is kind and he is good and he is gracious and he loves his children and he is with his children, present with them, quality time and quantity time. He is your father. That's how you have to know him. That's why Jesus introduces the prayer, our father, our father, our father. Know him as the father who is perfect and present and know him as the one who brings us peace. So Paul says, ponder these things, and he says, practice these things, and he will be with you, always. And that's the only way. That's why we can rejoice and have peace, always, because God is with us. Bow with me, and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you are here. Thank you that you are near to your people. Thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted. We thank you that you are our heavenly Father. Father, help us to delight to be your children. Father, help us to find great joy in the access that we have to you uh, through your word and, and through prayer. You have adopted us. You have rescued us and redeemed us. We were enemies. You have made us friends. You have made us sons and daughters. Father, encourage us with your word. Encourage us with these truths of your faithfulness to your people, of your presence with us. Father, do help us to understand what it is that we are called to do. Father, I pray that these things would not just be um, burdensome laws we feel like we have to perform to earn your favor. We know that that's not how it works. We thank you that we have your favor in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you freely bestow your favor on us. And that gives us life. Father, that gives us hope. That gives us joy. Father, use that favor and that grace that you have so freely given to us to, to move us and to motivate us. Father, to set aside all the silly things that we set our minds upon. Help us to be caught up with how good you have been to us. Help that to be the thing that defines us and identifies us and, and consumes us. And that, that we would then joyfully think on these things and pursue these things because we love you and because we want to be like you and because we want to be with you and we want to know you better and better and better. Father, help us. Forgive us for our sinfulness. We thank you for Christ who has taken all of that sin and borne it away, who has drunk the cup of your wrath to the last drops, who has, who has cast our sin away as far as the east is from the west. We thank you that you do not deal with us according to our sin, but you deal with us according to Christ, your son, so that we get to be your sons and daughters. I simply ask that you would encourage us with this truth this morning and that you would use that to motivate us to ponder and to practice these things. Father, we thank you for your word. Do your work now on our hearts by your spirit through that word. And we ask and we pray all this only in the name of Jesus. Amen.